This morning, I'd like to start by asking somewhat of an uncomfortable uh, and perhaps even unpleasant question, okay? Uh, and, and you don't have to say it out loud, but I just want you to consider this for a moment. And the question is, do you have any regrets? Uh, Many years ago, Billy Graham was on the television talk show Larry King Live. And at one point during the show, Bill, um, Larry King asked both Billy Graham and the other guest this very question. He says, do you have any regrets? Now, the other guest uh, wasn't a Christian, and he immediately spoke up and he boasted that said he had no regrets, no regrets in his life. Billy Graham, on the other hand, said yes. He's like, I do have regrets. You know what they were? Graham said that he regretted his sins. And that through his sins, he had hurt others. And he also said he regretted having been away from his children too much. But then most importantly, Graham said this. He looked at Larry King and he said that he had chosen, though, to leave his regrets with Jesus Christ, who not only forgives them, but also redeems. Good counsel, wouldn't you say? But what about you? A moment ago, I asked if you have any regrets. If you're anything like me, I, you probably do. So what do you do with your regrets? Let me, let me get a little bit more specific. Especially those of you who are parents. This morning, our passage focuses on David's response, King David's response, to the news that his son Absalom has died. We've been working our way through the book of 2 Samuel. And in our text this morning, chapter 18 through the first part of 19, chapter 19, the author uh, intentionally, and once again, he slows things down. Remember last week, he slowed things down so we could look at Absalom's death carefully he wants us to see some important details. Well, this morning, in the following text, he slows things down so that we could both see and hear David weep. Yet as we're about to see, the well from which David's tears flow is a mixture of different emotions. No doubt part of his grief is fueled by regret. I mean, just think about it, not only for his failures as a father, but also as a king. Because remember what the prophet Nathan made very clear? In the wake of David's sin with Bathsheba, he said that David would experience evil in his home as a result, right? I have no doubt that part of the grief we're going to see, the weeping and the tears, has to do with those failures, but but faith, there's something else driving David's grief. Something that the author wants us to see because it's very instructive for you and I today. You know what that is? Turn with me in your Bible to 2 Samuel. That's page 270 in that paperback Bible. Page 270. And I say this passage is instructive for us today, for as we're about to see, David, yes, King David, yet again needs to be corrected. This isn't the only time we've seen this as we've been studying the life of David. David, for all his greatness, for all the ways that he is a type of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, David, though, is also sinful, and he needs to be corrected. Because you see, faith, as we're about to see, there's something wrong 
with David's heart. And the correction he receives provides some, I think, timely counsel for you and me today. So follow along with in your copy of God's Word. We're going to pick things up in chapter 18, verse 19. And again, to, to give you the context, um, up until this point in 2 Samuel, things have been building to the civil war. David is God's anointed king. David is the man God has chosen to lead his kingdom. Yet Absalom, one of David's sons, has, has risen up and caused a revolt. There's, there's a sword in the house of David. It's all been leading to the civil war, which we looked at last week, where the servants of David defeated Absalom and his men. And the text slowed down, very, slowed down greatly so we could look carefully at the death of Absalom. And do you remember what the main lesson was we learned from Absalom's death? How the, the author intentionally connects his death with his hair and the glory with his hair earlier. It was simply that we learned that any glory you lift above God will cut you down, right? Anything, any glory, any praise, any delight, anything you lift above God will cut you down. This was the lesson we learned from Absalom. Well, now, now that Absalom is dead, the focus shifts back to David. So follow along with me as I read chapter 18, verse 19. Hear this. Then Ahimez, the son of Zadok, said, let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Remember, this is just on the heels of the victory, right? And Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go, Tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimez, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. And the race is on. <laughs> These two guys are running as fast as they can to get this news to David. Who do you think is going to win? Let's look. Then Ahimez ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now, let's just, just pause for a moment and ask, why do you think Joab would not want Ahimez to carry the news to David? Why is he telling him not to do this? Well, you know why? It's actually for the well-being of Ahimez. You see, listen to me, Joab knows very well what happens to people who think they are conveying good news to David when David thinks it's bad news. Just ask the Amalekite who told David that he killed Saul at the beginning of this book. Indeed, we, we know that this is the case. We know that Joab is thinking of the well-being for one of David's closest friends because of what Joab says there in verse 22. He says, there will be no reward for such news. Right? Well, let's see how David responds when David hears that another Saul-like enemy, his son, has died. And as I read this next section, notice where David is positioned when he receives the news. Like Eli in 1 Samuel 4, when he awaited news of a battle, David is also sitting between two gates. This is important because we're going to see Eli and David. But even more than that, notice where David is seated is the very place where Absalom first conspired against David in chapter 15. So notice what we read, chapter 18, verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates. And the watchmen went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. 
And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man is running. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimez, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Now notice how often the author has used the word news so far in this section. This is intentional, that the Hebrew root for the word news appears only 30 times in the Old Testament. Now listen to this. In our text this morning, our text this morning contains nine of those 30 occurrences. The term and almost always connotates good news or joyful tidings. So this is not insignificant. For you know what the point the author is trying to get across to us is? It's very simply this, and that is the report from what happened in the battle in general and the demise of Absalom in particular, that's good. This is good news that's coming. It's good news for the kingdom of God that evil Absalom has died. This detail is important because it's going to be setting up a contrast later in this passage. Because look at verse 28. Then Ahimez cried out to the king, all is well. In Hebrew, that word is one word. It's shalom. All is well. Peace. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man? Absalom. And Jimenez answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your, your servant, I, I saw a great commotion, but, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Now tell me, what are the first words Jimenez speaks to David? Shalom which is translated in our English, it is well, shalom. Ahimeneh says shalom, meaning there is peace. But what is David's response? He asks, is it well with Absalom? David literally responds, is shalom with the boy Absalom? Tell me, based on the question David asks, what is David's greatest concern right now? His son. It, is it God's kingdom? No, it's his son Absalom. David wanted peace for his son more than he wanted peace for God's kingdom. And notice, Ahimenez picks this up, doesn't he? <laughs> right? So tell me, does he answer David's question directly? No, he lies. He skirts around the issue. He's like, well, there was a commotion. I don't know. And you can, you can just imagine... Ahimenez brings the news. David asks, well, what about my son? And there's this long, awkward silence. Well, that awkward silence is broken with the heavy panting of the slow runner, <laughs> the Cushite, because the Cushite all of a sudden shows up. And notice the report he gives in the following verses. He says, and, be and behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my Lord the King. Again, notice this, this phrase, news, news. Good news for the Lord my King. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Same question. And notice what he says. And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Notice again, David asks the same question, doesn't he? 
Is it shalom with Absalom? Is it well with my son? And just like we read, just like we read at the very beginning of 2 Samuel 1, it is a foreigner who again brings the news to David of the death of the enemy of God. The Cushite makes it clear that not only did Absalom die, but that it was also a good thing. And now notice how David responds. So first, before you do, do you see the contrast here? Everybody is saying, the author saying, good news for God's kingdom. The cancer has been removed. Good news for God's kingdom. The kingdom, David, that God promised through you would last forever. The evil has been done. Good news. Shalom. There's peace in the kingdom. I notice David's response. Verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joah, Behold, the king is weeping in mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And then look at this. And the people stole into the city that they, as people steal in, who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Notice, I mean, we're going to talk about this. Yes, grief is appropriate when any child dies. But David is totally altering the mood here. David is literally throwing rain on the victory parade, celebrating the victory and the preservation of God's kingdom. Look again at what verse 3 states, and that people stole into that city as people still who are ashamed when they flee in battle. They are acting now like they have lost and suffered defeat. Why? All because the response of their king, David, his response to the death of an evil, wicked son. Now again, no matter how awful a child might be, any parent is going to have some level of grief over their death. Right? But faith, I believe the text is showing us that David's grief moves well beyond that. His tears are drawn from a disordered heart. And we're not the only ones who see this. Joab does too. So you know what Joab decides? Joab decides David needs reality therapy. So notice what he says in response to David. Look at verses 5 and 7. And Joab, by the way, what a, he's a mystery. Sometimes he's doing great. Sometimes he's off the, his, the rails. But here he's in line. Because notice what he says in verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You today have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and of your concubines. Notice, here's the heart of it. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Now, you know what I just read? I just read the longest sentence in First and Second Samuel. 
The opening line of Joab's rebuke is 24 words in Hebrew, the longest sentence in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And notice, Joab's rebuke is like a machine gun firing accusations at David. And you know what? Joab's bullets are justified. And notice, at the heart of his rebuke, it lies there at the end of verse 6 when he says, if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you would be pleased. Joab pulls no punches in calling David out for his disordered desires. And just, just as we're kind of entering this narrative, put yourself in David's shoes. How would you respond to such correction? Would you push back? Would you say, hey man, just give me some space. My son just died. Would you get angry? Was Absalom David's son? Yes, but he was also another Saul-like figure who labored to destroy God's anointed king and kingdom. Now look at how David responds to this rebuke in verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat at the gate, and all the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate, and all the people came before the king. Amen and amen. This is God's word. It's a good word. Meet Brie Prochet. Brie is 24 years old, and she lives in St. Louis, Missouri. Last year, she took a vacation to Sedona, Arizona, and you know what? She had the greatest time. In fact, she loved that vacation spot so much, the spot she found there in downtown Sedona. She loved that spot so much that you know what she did? She decided to get the coordinates of Sedona tattooed on her body. There's a picture. As you can see, the tattoo artist really did a great job of making the coordinates clear and easy to see, didn't he? Unfortunately, they're the wrong coordinates. <laughs> you see, when Brie handed the coordinates to the artist, she had unfortunately written down south instead of north for the first line of the coordinates. So instead of having the coordinates to a downtown Sonoma spot, she now has a, a tattoo of a random spot in the South Pacific Ocean. <laughs> Here's that spot. Okay. Now get this, okay? According to the news report, she didn't realize the mistake until a week later. In her own words, she said this, quote, it was a painful realization. You think? But you know what made it particularly painful besides the actual tattoo part? What made it particularly painful is that she really fell in love with Sodona. That location, it brought her peace. Now, I don't think any of us are going to tattoo the coordinates of a favorite location on our back. But I do know that all of us, every single person in this room, we are in pursuit of peace. That is, we all are looking to something or some person to comfort us and give us a sense of security and well-being. And you know where most people choose to find or to locate their peace? No, it, it's not Sedona, Arizona. No, the place where most people can often choose to find their peace 
is in their children. Indeed, they can often tattoo those coordinates on their heart. That was certainly the case with David in the text I just read, wasn't it? Tell me, what was David's greatest concern? Yeah, what news brought him comfort and peace? Was it that God's kingdom had been delivered from evil? Was, was that the shalom he rested in? No, what was David's greatest concern? It was his son, wasn't it? As Joab stated, what pleased David the most was his son. Indeed, as I think this text makes really clear, his concern for his son greatly eclipsed any kind of concern he had for God's kingdom, didn't it? For how did he react when he heard that God's kingdom was saved? News, good news, shalom, peace, peace to the kingdom. That there was peace because his wicked, murderous, God-hating son had died. He wept. And again, I want to argue this is more than just the normal weeping and tears any parent rightly should have at the death of their child. I think the text makes it clear there's something else going on here. In faith, what I want you to see is that David, he needed to be corrected. Joab had to correct his errant thinking. In faith, the correction he received is a word I think we need to hear today as well. And you know what that is? It's simply this, friend... Find your peace in God's kingdom, not your children. This is the good counsel our passage this morning invites us to embrace. Don't make the coordinates for your peace be your children. As much as you might love them, don't. Christian parent, please hear me. Your children will disappoint you. They will frustrate you. They will let you down. They might even do things that break your heart. And if they are your source of peace, well-being and satisfaction, when your children do such things, you won't simply be sad as you rightly should you will be crushed and devastated. This is why we must find our ultimate source of peace, not in the behavior or the well-being of our children, but in, friend, please hear me, God's unshakable kingdom, amen? A kingdom we belong to through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a lesson David needed to learn and is a lesson we must learn as well. Christian, we can have peace regardless of what our children are doing because God is on his throne. And because God is on his throne, when our children do break our hearts, we can go to the King of kings and the Lord of lords with our requests because we know he is in control. So here's what I want to ask. How can we do this? How can you find peace in God's kingdom rather than your children? And I believe our text shows us there's, there's just three applications I want to draw to your attention. And I, and I want to say up front, this sermon and these applications simply aren't just for parents with small kids. Keep in mind, David is dealing with adult children. So if anything, the application is for those with kids who are grown. Indeed, these truths also apply to grandparents and aspiring parents as well. So here's the first application I want to draw your attention. How do you do this? First, if you want to find your peace in God's kingdom and not your children, the first thing you need to do is renounce sentimentality. And I want you to flip back to chapter 18, verse 5. This is actually like at chapter 18 through uh, chapter 19, verse 9. That's really kind of one unit, but we, we broke it up. But I want you to look, we looked at this last week, but look at chapter 18, verse 5. Before the battle. Okay, here are David's instructions. Verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, 
deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Do you, do you know what the definition of sentimentality is? Here's William Webster's definition, rather, Webster's definition. It's this. Marked or governed by feeling, sensibility, or emotional idealism. That is, you are ruled, you're governed, the thing that's driving your decisions are your feelings or emotions. And I want to say, case study David. At least in this part of his life. As we discussed last week, David's request to have his men deal gently with Absalom was not only completely ludicrous, but was also misguided, for Absalom is the cancer to God's kingdom. As one commentator has said, David was willing to abandon military and moral considerations in view of his personal feelings. On the one hand, he's sending out the people to risk their lives for him and his throne. While on the other hand, he's prepared to ask expressly that his son, who is the root of all evil, shall not be killed. David was ruled by his feelings and emotions. And I have to say, this is one of the, the benefits of expositional preaching as we work through books of the Bible, large swaths. This is a pattern in David's life. This is not a one-off. I mean, do you remember how he was persuaded by the woman of Tekoa in 2 Samuel 14? After Absalom murdered his half-brother Amnon for raping Tamar, David as king should have enacted justice and executed Absalom for his grievous sin. But did he? No, and why? Because he instead chose to listen to the counsel of the woman of Tekoa who uh, persuaded him to be ruled by his emotions and feelings. Remember this? Christian parent, beware you don't fall into the same trap. Indeed, beware of people who make your feelings and your emotions more important and authoritative than God's good word. Beware of those people whose counsel is man-centered versus God-centered. <laughs> whose counsel is, well, well, what will make you happy? What will bring you joy versus what would God want of me in this moment? And can I ask, are there any situations with your children, perhaps even your adult children, where you think you might be tempted to make a decision based on your emotions and feelings rather than God's clear and authoritative word? Can you think of any situations where you might be tempted to do that? That is, you know how God would want you to respond to your child's sin, but instead of courageously doing the hard thing God would want you to do, you instead follow in the footsteps of David and perhaps let your feelings drive your response. Can you think of any? I can think of a couple. Probably the most common in churches across America, is when an adult child who professes to be a Christian chooses to live in open and unrepentant sexual sin. Sin that just breaks the heart of all those around that adult child. How should a Christian parent respond to that? Well, the Bible is not silent on this matter. Did you know that? The Apostle Paul, he specifically addresses this issue. Listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote you to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, 
or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That is, they profess to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, a brother or sister in the Lord. He says, I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Again, this is for the person who is professing to be a Christian, yet is choosing. It's not like they've sinned and they have sorrow for it and they're wanting to change their ways. This is for the person who's in unrepentant sin. Clear as, more clear than the coordinates on that girl's back. Now, now to be sure, please hear me. The application of this passage will require some serious thought. We need to be biblical and wise as to what this would look like today. But this is what I want to say. Sadly, many Christian parents simply reject this command outright. And you know why? Because they've convinced themselves that cutting themselves off from such a person would be detrimental. They feel... It would be more loving to tolerate and welcome the professing Christian engaged in unrepentant sin. And faith, hear me, such actions are not loving. No, please hear me, cutting yourself off from that person is God's very means to bring the wayward Christian back to himself. Because please hear me, having that person cut off from you is not the worst thing. You know what's the worst thing? Having that person cut off from God, which we do not want. But if you're going to be ruled by your emotions, if you're going to be governed by sentimentality, this command will fall on deaf ears. As we've been talking about all year with our theme called the Council, we not only want to trust God's message, but also His methods, right? Or what about the child who wants to live contrary to his or her biological sex? Could that be a situation where we could be ruled and governed by our emotions rather than God's clear and authoritative word? God's word would counsel them to glorify God in their body since their body is not their own and to live in accordance with their biological sex and the wisdom and the in his wisdom with the bio, with the sex assigned to them even if they feel differently. Instead of walking that long and hard road of pointing the child to God and his good word and the resources of his spirit and his people, a Christian parent could easily be tempted to let his or her emotions rule the day and just support such, I'm using my words carefully, perversity. One more thought. What if your child, and I'm thinking of an adult child here, because this is, what if your adult child makes a choice that isn't sinful, but it just goes against your preferences? Could you be ruled by your feelings more than God's word in that situation? Could you allow your strong opinions to cloud your judgment? Here too, we must reject being governed by our feelings. So that's taking our cues from the, mis I mean, from the mistakes of David. And man, his home was a wreck because he did not renounce sentimentality. Let us learn from that. But then second, I think we ought to reject passivity. Notice Joab has to instruct David to do exactly that. Look at it again at verses 19, verses 7 and 8. Joab says, Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go... Not a man will stay with you this night. 
And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. David is passive. He, I mean, he literally has to be summoned to act, to take his spot as king. And again, what I, what I want you to see is this is not a one-time thing. This, this is David's Achilles heel. As I've mentioned to you before, in many ways, he's a second Eli. I mean, just, just consider for a moment the problems David's passivity produced. First, his passivity not to go with war with his men led him to go up on the rooftop and then give way to his sexual lusts and commit adultery with Bathsheba. Then after Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar, instead of enacting justice, he was again passive and just simply got angry and did nothing. And then as a result of that passivity, what happened two years later? Absalom took matters into his own hands and killed Amnon. And how did David respond to that? Did he enact justice and do the right thing? Did he fulfill his kingly responsibilities and execute Absalom for the murder of his brother? No. He again did nothing. And sadly, as we look at the life of David, his passivity doesn't stop here in chapter 19. Actually, do me a favor. Flip over a couple pages to 1 Kings 1. As you're turning there, do you remember, okay, little pop quiz, do you remember what Absalom did when he first started his revolt against David in chapter 15, verse 1? Do you remember what he did? Absalom got how many men? Do you remember? 50. 50 men, and he got something else. What was it? Not a donkey? He rode on something. Chariots. Probably the first time chariots were ever seen in downtown Jerusalem because God forbid that kings would mount up chariots and horses, right? So Absalom, he got this 50 men in chariots and he rode into town. Notice what we see in 1 Kings chapter 1. Verses 5 through 6. Listen to what we read about David and his other son, Adonijah. I'm actually going to throw it up here on the screen for you too. Listen to this. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. Have we seen this before? Here's the younger brother of Absalom doing the exact same thing. And then now notice Probably one of the saddest verses in the Bible. His father, referring to David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. What a grievous statement. His son is in rebellion, he's sinning, and not only as an adult child, but even as a young kid, the text implies. Never once did his dad, did King David, look at him and say, why are you doing this? He was passive. Yet, Christian, God's word calls parents to be active. Faith, please hear me, especially parents of younger kids. And grandparents here, it is good to train your kids or grandkids to be obedient. Obedience is not a dirty word. Train, training your children to obey does not go against God's grace. Train them to, to listen and be well-behaved downstairs for the kids of faith. Train them to listen and be well-behaved in school. Train them to, be, to listen and be well-behaved at the dinner table when you're in public. Training them, disciplining them, correcting them, and I know it's exhausting. That, is not, that does not go against the grace of God. Several years ago, pastor and author John Piper wrote a short book entitled, or not a short book, huh, he writes lots of books, but he wrote a short article entitled, Parents require obedience of your children. And the whole article is well worth your time. 
But there's one statement I just wanted to pull from it and share with you. Piper makes this really helpful observation. He says this. He says, parents who do not teach their children to obey God's appointed authorities, prepare them for a life out of step with God's word. A life out of step with the very gospel they desire to emphasize. It's clear that David did not teach his sons to obey God's appointed authorities. Let that not be said of us. And then lastly, if we're going to find our peace in God's kingdom and not our children, we need to reorient our affections. Look at verse 6 again. Here's, here's the heart of the correction that Joab gives David. And, and Christian, let the correction come to your heart as well, Okay? says, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you, for you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, meaning the kingdom is gone, if God's kingdom is wiped away, if all of us were dead, he said, then you would be pleased. Last week, uh, Stephanie's parents visited us for several days. Many of maybe said hi to Larry and Donna last Sunday. Um, my father-in-law is very handy, and I am not. And so he graciously, as he often does when he comes to visit, he graciously says, hey, can I help out around the house? Any projects that need to get done? And there always are. And uh, one had to do with an electrical outlet that wasn't functioning properly. Well, when he unscrewed the, the thing, uh, <laughs> you know the thing, right? <laughs> and he took, he took a close look. We, we found the problem. You know what it was? It wasn't wired properly. So it is with David's heart. Like our electrical socket, it too, it needed to be rewired. That is, David's affections needed to be reoriented to have God at the center, not his son. And Christian parent, and an aspiring Christian parent and grandparent, please hear me. It is only, 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 only when you love the Lord supremely that you will then be able to love your children correctly. You will not be able to love and serve them well if they are your greatest love. But when you love God supremely, when you want to honor Him above everything else, that will enable you to say the hard thing that needs to be said, to do the hard thing that needs to be done, even though you know you're going to have to suffer the consequences of their response. Parents who subtly, and it's so subtle, when they find their peace in their children rather than God's kingdom, they're going to say things and behave in such a way that doesn't disrupt, really, the king of that kingdom, their child. To the child's detriment. No, it's only when our affections are rightly ordered that we'll be able to parent properly. But loving God supremely will not only enable you to do the hard thing when it needs to be done, you know what else it's going to do? It will allow you to enjoy the sweet moments too. To enjoy the sweet moments properly. So faith, how do we reorient our affections? You know how we reorient our affections? It's by seeing afresh what David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, accomplished on our behalf. Notice what we see here. This passage is one of many that testify that as God's anointed king, David is a suffering king, isn't he? David suffers. However, he shed tears. He suffers in part because of his own sin, because of his own griefs, because of his own regrets, doesn't he? David, for all his greatness, he is not the promised one that God spoke about in 2 Samuel 17. 
No, David's failures is pointing to that future son. We need a future son of David. Please hear me. One who will not shed tears for his own sin, but listen to me, one who will bear our griefs and our sorrows. And friend, that's precisely what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel, friend, please hear me, is that although we have sinned against a holy God, although all of us, we are under His just wrath for our sins and regrets, in love, God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross in our place. On the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the full wrath you and I are owed for our sinful, regretful ways. Then three days later, Christ rose from the dead, defeating sin and death and proving himself to be the Son of God. Friend, have you placed your faith in Christ alone? What are you... What are you going to do with your sinful regrets? What are you going to do with the sin that weighs down heavily on you? Work it off? Try really hard? Friend, as we've said, you can go to hell clinging to your own righteousness or you can go to heaven trusting in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Receive the gift of salvation by faith. That's why it's good news. You don't do any of the work. Christ did it. He bore our sorrows. He took all our sinful regrets and they were nailed to the cross so that you can be fully forgiven. And for those of you who do belong to Christ, hear this good news. Christian, like Billy Graham, you can bring all your regrets, all your parenting regrets before the Lord. And He will forgive you. You no longer have to bear that burden. And because you belong to God's eternal kingdom, you can rest knowing that the King of Kings is in control. Indeed, we can rest knowing that He hears our prayers for our wayward children that we pray for, that we fast for, and that our God who's on His throne will act in His timing and in His way. He is good and He does good, right? What hope, amen? Because God and His kingdom, because of God and His kingdom, we can say it is well. Let's pray.